welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Revelation 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the beauty of your word. We thank you that there's so many different types in your word. We've got letters, we've got histories, we've got songs, we've got proverbs, we've got apocalyptic literature like this. And we're just so thankful, Lord, that you feed us with such a rich and diverse table of food. And we pray, Lord, that this would be food to us this morning. We pray it would make us strong. We pray it would make us courageous. We pray it make us joyful and trust in you even deeper. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in a series on the book of Revelation. And for those of you who have kids, we do have great curriculum online every single week if you go to our website. And this week's is on the book of Revelation. And there's this really cool diagram that's been done of the book. It's really beautifully done. So go to our website, check that out. If you've got third through fifth grade, there's a video for them and there's pictures. And we put that out every single week as part of our vow to, to be a part of the discipleship 
of these little ones. People love internet conspiracies, don't they? People love internet conspiracies. People love them even more lately. And I could mention particular ones, but there's a chance some of you might believe them, and I'd hate to start off by offending you. Some of you might believe in reptilians, uh, the idea that some people in power are part reptile, and they're shapeshifters. No, I don't think you guys believe in that one. But uh, I won't mention some that you might believe in, like Flat Earth or something like that. But why do people find conspiracy theories so attractive? Because we do. We find it very attractive. We find it attractive, guys, because our world is confusing and chaotic, and conspiracy theories help us make sense of it. We're story beings. We need a story that kind of helps us understand what we're seeing. When things don't add up, we need a story to tell us, how does this all fit together? Conspiracy theories offer us an opportunity to get the truth behind the lies, the truth about whatever is kind of how the videos always start, right? People need a story. God's created us as story creatures because he's made us for a story he's written. And so if we don't have God's big story, we go looking for a story to live in. Conspiracy theories will become increasingly common as our world becomes more chaotic and as we drift away from the story that God's given us because we'll be desperate to fill that hole sometimes. Uh, and, And the problem, guys, is that if we live out of a false story, it's as dangerous as sailing with a fake map. If you live out of a false story, it can be disastrous. Revelation 12 gives us a glimpse of that one true story that we actually live in. And it does it with these amazing vivid symbols, doesn't it? Dragon and woman and wilderness and flood and all these things. These amazing vivid symbols to show us the story that we actually live in. This is a story that really will make sense out of what seems like a confusing and chaotic world. This is the story that really will give you the truth behind the lies. And you might think about that because I mentioned, you know, conspiracy theories and stuff like that. You might think, well, why should I believe this story over all the stories I read on the internet? Why should I believe this story? And I would just say real simply, you should believe it because of authority and expertise. Because where does this story come from? Revelation 12, where does this story come from? From whose authority and expertise does it come from? Not some random guy on the internet, right? It comes with the authority and expertise of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, I'll remind you guys, is an expert on everything, okay? On everything. And so when he gives us this story, this is a story we should believe. Remember I told you guys that the book of Revelation, it isn't linear. It isn't like a straight chronology from chapter 1 to to chapter 22. There's a general flow of chronology, but there's also cycles in there. There's a cyclical pattern. What he does is he'll, he'll tell a bit of the story of the universe And then he'll stop, and he'll rewind, and he'll change the camera angle, and he'll tell the story again. And he'll do it at various different points over and over again. Play, rewind, change the angle. And he does it with all these rich symbols so we can see what our world is about and what it will be from different angles. Revelation 12 is a really good example of that. Because here we are in the middle of the book, and we go back to before Jesus was born. Clearly tells us the book is not a straight chronology, right? This is a deep rewind He's going to rewind from before Jesus was born up until our day and beyond. And here's what we have in this scene. We're going to take a look at this scene. It's, a, it's an ancient conflict. It's something that affects every single human being. And we're going to look at this scene through a few questions. We're going to ask, who's the woman in this story? Who's the child? Who's the dragon? That one should be easy. And where do we fit into the story? And I realized just from the onset 
This is a really funny passage that we're doing at a baby dedication. I know as we were doing the reading, they were like, did he plan this? I would never have planned this for a baby dedication. This is just where it landed, honestly. I'd be like, this will really mess with them. Okay. Who is the woman? Take a look at verse one. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. Who is this amazing woman? This woman is clothed with the sun. She has the moon under her feet. She has a a crown with 12 stars on it. Well, the stars help a lot. The stars, those 12 stars, you could think of Joseph's vision that he had. He had this vision that his brothers, the 11 stars, were going to bow down to him, which would be the 12th star. So this is a symbol of God's people. God's people, Israel, this woman with 12 stars. This woman is God's people. God's people are described as a woman, as a wife, as a bride in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And you're a part of that bride, guys, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ. You're actually a part of this woman, Old Testament and New Testament. This, guys, is how God sees his people. I think it's really helpful to take a look at verse 1 and think, this is what God sees when he looks at his people. Can you guys imagine how encouraging it would have been to those first century Christians who were so beat up and weak and beleaguered? Can you imagine how encouraging it would have been for them to know that God sees them this way? God sees his bride this way, that she's beautiful, that she's radiant, that she's glorious, that she rules the world. That's what he sees when he looks at his church. She has his heart. That's how God sees you if you're in Christ. Notice that she's clothed with the sun. Earlier, it talked about Jesus' face shines like the sun. She's reflecting the beauty of Christ. The reason we look like this to God is because we're wrapped in the glory of Jesus Christ. That's who the woman is. The woman is God's people. Who is the, the child? Take a look at verse 2. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pangs and agony of giving birth. Who's the child here? Well, we get helped a lot in verse 5. Take a look at verse 5. She gave birth to a male child who is the one who will rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That's language from Psalm 2. So we know that this child is the long-awaited Messiah, Jesus Christ, that she's giving birth to. It's the child that God had promised from the beginning. You, know, you guys realize that even from the very beginning of this book, from the very beginning of the history of the world, God has promised his people a child. Remember that God gave us a world that was fascinating and beautiful and full of joy. It had no sin in it or suffering or death. It was a world that was perfect. And then, spoiler alert, we ruined it. I don't know if you've noticed, but we ruined this world, right? We ruined it by turning our back on a generous God who gave us everything. We wanted to be our own gods. We wanted to define our own way. We rebelled against him. We believed the serpent, Satan's lies in the garden, and turned from him. And we've all followed that. That's why I say we all, because we've all done it in our own lives right? We've all replayed what happened in the garden. But what's so cool, guys, when you look at Genesis 3 is God did not destroy everyone. What did he do? He did two things. He took animal skins and he covered them to say, I'm going to cover your sin, right? The bloody skins of animals. He said, I'm going to cover your nakedness. And then he promised a seed of the woman, a child of the woman that would one day come and crush the head of the serpent. It's in Genesis 3.15. It's the oldest statement of the gospel. And it is that though the serpent is going to bite his heel, that this son, this child, this seed of the woman will one day crush the head of the serpent. And it was a promise made a really long time ago, right? Thousands and thousands. Even for these first century people, it was a long time. Thousands of years, this promised child, this promise of a child who would defeat Satan was repeated over and over again for centuries through all different sources 
Um, he told Abraham, for example, that the child was going to be born from his line, right? And he was going to be a child that would bless all nations. And then he told David, he told David that the child was going to be born from his line as well, you know, as it funneled down from his line. And that that child was going to reign as king forever, which is an interesting promise that there would be a human king that can reign forever. And then to Isaiah, he told him that the child was going to be born through a virgin and and told him that that child was going to suffer and bear away all the sins of the people. And throughout the Old Testament, there's more and more details being added to that promise, that Genesis 3.15 promise, that the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. More and more details are added, and God's people waited and waited and waited. And you know who else waited? The dragon waited. Take a look. Verse 3. It says that the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Who is this dragon? It says in verse 3 that he's a great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and has on his head seven diadems, seven crowns. Um, This is all, as we've reminded ourselves throughout Revelation, symbolic language. These symbols mean something. Who is this dragon? Well, it helps a ton to look at verse 9. Verse 9 says his names, all of his names almost, it says that he is an ancient serpent, so we know he's the one from Genesis 3, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Devil means slanderer, Satan means adversary. It says here that he deceives the world. In verse 10, it calls him the accuser. This dragon here is depicted as a red dragon. This is actually the fallen angel Satan, who's behind all the attacks on God's people and all the destruction that we see in the world. And I know sometimes people will be like, gosh, you're 21st century person, educated person, veterinarian, like, do you really believe a fallen angel is behind all this? And I would say to you, do you have a better explanation for the evil in the world? The evil in the world is strange. You have to just step back and go like, hmm, this is odd. Why are people so prone to be so evil to each other as we look throughout history? And then all you have to do is look into your own family, into your own heart, into your own relationships and say, why is this so hard? Why is it so hard to be loving to the people I love most? It makes sense that there would be a power behind all of this, and that power is Satan. And he wanted to destroy Christ. And the reason why he wanted to destroy Christ is because he's always wanted to be God, right? We know that all the way back into the Old Testament, that he's wanted to be God. He even dresses himself up as Christ. Take a look at verse 3. It says, on his head are seven diadems. That number seven is usually used in the book of Revelation for God, power that God has. He's impersonating here. He's wearing seven crowns to impersonate Christ. Satan, guys, is an insane, self-deceived creature whose downfall is that he wants to be God. We know from Isaiah 14, 14, that he said, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will make myself like the most high. It's insane. It's crazy. It's foolish. It's the worst idea ever, right? And it's sad, really, when you had all that he had. He was created in the beginning perfect. He was created to enjoy God's presence just like us, and yet that wasn't enough for him. C.S. Lewis said he has this preface to the Paradise Lost, and he, he said this in the preface. He said this, In the midst of a world of light and love, of song and feast and dance, Lucifer could find nothing to think about more interesting than his own prestige. That's pathetic, right? That's pathetic. And we often mirror that, right? Satan has spread this insanely foolish idea of wanting to be God. Because guys, behind every sin we do is a desire for us to be our own gods. The essence of all sin is that we want to be our own gods. We've been infected with the lie of his. 
And because Christ was in his way, the dragon wants to devour him. Look, take a look again at verse 4, the second half. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Now, Satan's been trying to devour the child for a really long time. If you look throughout the Old Testament, you see he's constantly attacking God's people. Why? Because if he can destroy God's people, he can destroy the line, the line of the Messiah. And then we have, you know, probably the clearest example would be Herod, right? After Jesus is born, Herod just tries to kill all the infants in the area to, to kill baby Jesus. Satan tried to devour Jesus through the temptations in the wilderness, right? If he could get him to fall through those temptations, he would devour the Messiah. He wasn't able to do that. And then his worst idea, actually, was through Judas and Pilate and the mob, Satan tried to destroy Jesus through the cross. And that really was a bad idea, okay? Because it turns out that the cross was the way that Jesus would actually crush the head of the serpent. It was through his death on the cross that Jesus paid for all our sins and defeated Satan and released us from Satan's kingdom. We see that in Colossians 1.13. It says, he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us. That's a cool gospel word. And transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians also says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame through the cross. That Jesus, in his death, Satan bit his heel, but Jesus ended up crushing Satan's head. On the cross, Jesus Christ defeated sin and Satan and evil and death. He is that seed of the woman who crushed the head of the serpent. The theological term for this, guys, if you want one, it's Latin, Christus Victor, meaning Christ gained victory over the powers of evil through the cross. Isn't that amazing? It's so amazing. So Jesus has this victory over Satan. And then this chapter kind of does a little switchback in verse 7 to show the effects of the cross on Satan. Satan got evicted, okay? And what's really interesting in verse 7 is that Michael and his angels are charged with taking out the trash. Take a look at verse 7. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, and he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the, the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation, the power, the kingdom of our God and the authority of our Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down, who accused them day and night before our God. So when Jesus ascended after his death, his resurrection, 40 days later, he ascends as his ascension. He goes up and Satan comes crashing down. You say, that's kind of strange. What do you mean Satan came crashing down from heaven? That kind of language. Well, remember in the Old Testament, in places like Job, Satan was actually able to come up to God's courtroom in heaven and accuse God's people. It's a really weird passage. When you look at places like Job chapter 1 and 2, you're like, what's he doing here? And he comes up and he slithers on up and he accuses Job, right? He makes all these accusations. But what's cool, guys, this passage shows us that now, because of Jesus' victory, God refuses to hear Satan's accusations toward us. Satan has been booted from God's court in heaven. Satan cannot bring any admissible evidence against you if you're in Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? There is no admissible evidence against you in Jesus Christ. Romans 3, uh, 8.33 says this, Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it who condemns? Jesus Christ is the one who died. Satan has been banished from God's courtroom. And I want to give you guys just a little bit of practical application from that. 
Satan's your enemy. He does a couple of things. He'll, he'll tempt you to sin. He'll kind of package it up and put it before you and try and tempt you to sin. And then what's really interesting is when you take the bait, what happens? Then he accuses you. Then he's the one that cares about God's law all of a sudden, right? So he'll tempt you, you take the bait, and then he'll accuse you. And part of the pattern that he wants to do when he's accusing you is he wants to drive a wedge between you and God. There is not a wedge between you and God if you're in Christ, but you could think there is, right? As you believe those accusations, you could hide away like Adam and Eve hid away and, uh, from God when he came into the garden, right? He, he, he tempts and then he accuses. And one thing I want to say to you from this text is, if God no longer pays attention to Satan's accusations against you, neither should you, right? I mean, if God no longer pays attention to Satan's accusations against you, neither should you. Satan does not have God's ear anymore, okay? But maybe he has yours. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you've repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus, I want to encourage you to ignore him, okay? Ignore him. Part of spiritual warfare, guys, is knowing the difference between conviction, which is the Holy Spirit pointing out your sin so you'll return to him, confess your sin, repent of it, that's conviction, and condemnation or accusation, right? I got a chart here. So conviction, condemnation, or accusation. And I got this little chart for you because I think it's really helpful. This is really important because both of these feel bad, okay? Both of these feel bad. Both of these are times you feel bad because of your sin. They are completely different things though, okay? One is God's purpose to bring you home to him. One is Satan's purpose to divide you and move you away from God. And so conviction is from God, Condemnation or accusation is from Satan. Conviction leads to life. Condemnation leads to despair. Conviction ends in joy. That's one of the things that like, you guys know this. When you're like refusing to repent of some sin and you drag it out for a long time, you're always fighting your own joy, right? Psalm 32. You're always fighting your own joy. Conviction ends in joy. Returning home. The prodigal returns home to the father who embraces him. Condemnation ends in sorrow. Conviction makes you want to change. Condemnation makes you believe you can't change. Conviction leads you to your new identity in Christ. Condemnation leads you to your old identity in sin. Conviction brings specific awareness of specific sin. I think this is really important because a lot of times Satan's accusations are very vague. They're very blurry. They're, it's very hard to repent of something that's not specific. You just have this general feeling of filthiness, of dirtiness, of, of being cast out. So condemnation leads, uh, brings vague uncertainty about sin. Conviction always causes you to look to Christ. Condemnation causes you to look to yourself, right? And so a lot of times you're going to kind of, you know, put yourself in a spiritual timeout. You feel like, oh, God doesn't want anything to do with me. I need to spend a few days maybe like showing that I'm real serious and get, that you're looking to yourself. You immediately return. You're not going to do any good by yourself, okay? That's not going to go well. Conviction is a blessing, condemnation is a burden. I think it's really important, guys. Some of you might hear Satan accusing you, but you got to know that God doesn't. God refuses to hear it. You should refuse to hear it too. For some of you guys, you, you know, your sin has become evidence that the gospel just isn't true for you. Maybe it works on other people. The gospel's not true for me. Look at my sin. Guys, sin does not nullify the truth of the gospel. It confirms it. The gospel says you're a sinner. You have more evidence of it now. Okay, more evidence of the gospel. And so you need to return to him. I love what Luther said. Take a look at the way Luther dealt. Luther dealt with accusations from the devil, Martin Luther, the reformer. He said this, 
So when the devil throws your sin in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. <laughs> tell Satan this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is, there I will be also. Okay, that's how you fight that, right? Satan isn't allowed in heaven. Do not allow him in your head, okay? If he's not allowed in God's courtroom, he should not be allowed in the courtroom of your conscience. We all have a courtroom in our heads. It's our conscience. He shouldn't be allowed in there. If you repented of sin, if you've trusted in Christ, if you've confessed it to the Lord, your conscience should be clean. That, that accusation you're hearing is not from the Lord. And that's part of what it means, guys. If you look at verse 11, where it says they conquered Satan by the blood of the lamb. That's part of what that means, right? In the gospel, we have at least two weapons. We have a defensive weapon and we have an offensive weapon. The defensive weapon is that blood of the lamb. It's a shield. It's a defense for our conscience. It's a defense for our hearts. Ephesians 6, 16 calls it the shield of faith, right? That we trust in the blood of Jesus, and that absorbs the fiery darts of doubt and accusation of the enemy, right? We confess our sin, we apply the blood of Christ to our conscience, and then the thing you need to do from there is believe God that it's gone. There's nothing holy about not believing God that he has removed all of your sin. And so that's a defensive weapon, the blood of Christ. And then there's an offensive weapon in verse 10, which is the word, uh, verse 11, which is the word of testimony. And that's the sword, right? That's the offensive weapon. That's the word of the gospel that we actually can use offensively against Satan to help people be freed from his clutches. So we have a defensive weapon, the blood of Jesus. We have an offensive weapon where we bring the gospel out into the world. We've been told that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. A lot of people say, oh yeah, so the, you know, hell can't attack us and beat us up. Gates don't attack people, okay? That's about us storming them, okay? The gates of hell not prevailing is us offensively freeing people from the domain of darkness through the gospel. You've never been attacked by gates, right? You attack gates. They will not prevail against God's people. Um, Jesus describes Satan as a strong man who's been bound in his house so that we can plunder it. Doesn't that sound fun? Is that a kind of looting you'd like to get involved in? This is great looting, right? As we share the gospel, guys, we steal people from Satan's house. Some of you guys in this room are actually released from his house this year. Feels awesome. You heard the gospel. You believe the gospel. You were freed from his domain. The rest of us, for all of us, let's, let's join in the looting of Satan's house. I can't think of a better thing to be involved in. <laughs> Then sharing the gospel, looting Satan's house. So you're going to need two weapons. You're going to need the blood. It's a shield. You need the sword. It's offensive because you're in the war. So where are we in this story? We actually fit in here. Let me read uh, 12 through 17. So Satan's thrown down and it says in 12, it says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. They're like, you guys don't have to hear it anymore. Like he's out, right? And then what happens? But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. I love that. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to a place where she, uh, the, to a place where she is to be nourished for times, time, and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away in a flood. But the earth came and helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the river that the dragon had poured out of his mouth. 
Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Guys, Satan, unable to harm the child, Christ, thrown out of heaven, unable to accuse you before God, is now thrown down to earth, hunting the woman and her children. And that's where you come in. That's you. That's you. You're the child of the woman. And Satan knows it. And when you were born again, guys, you were born again into this ancient war between the seed of the woman and the dragon. That's the story you live in. That's the story that makes sense out of all the battles you face. That explains why your life seems like such a war sometimes. Because it is. Okay? That's why. Well, you were born, though, into this war after the most important battle was already won. Think about World War II. You were born after D-Day. The cross is the D-Day that guarantees our V-Day, our victory. Satan's defeated, but he's not destroyed. Satan has lost, and he knows it. Look at verse 12. It says that he knows it, and he's furious about it, right? So Satan is this very hideous, irrational, insane, brilliant creature, right? Thousands of years to watch people and understand people. He knows he's lost, and so like a suicide bomber, he just wants to take as many people out with him as he can. And so he's furious, and he wants to take it out on you, the children of the woman. So we need to be vigilant. We need to be vigilant about attacks. I think a lot of times we don't think we're in any kind of war. There's so many things in, in the New Testament that talk about being sober-minded. They talk about being alert, awake, and that's because you're in a war. And next week we're going to look at the threefold attack that he has in the next few chapters. And that sounds terrifying, right? It sounds terrifying. And it would be completely terrifying if not for the care and protection of God. Did you see the care and protection of God in this passage? Take a look at it. So there's this attack, verse 13, and then what is 14 starts with the word what? But, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to a place where she is to be nourished time, time, and half a time. And then Satan attacks again in verse 15, right? The serpent pours out water like a river to try and drown her, right? In a flood. And then what does verse 16 start with? But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the river that the dragon had poured out. And you see this cycle over and over again. And what's going on is he's attacking God's people. God's is coming to their rescue. And then verse 17 includes us where he goes off to make war against the rest of our offspring. Guys, Satan will not succeed in destroying us in the wilderness because God cares for us there. Did you guys notice the Exodus language? This passage is full of Exodus language. Intentionally, John does this all the time. Take a look at it. It says that our enemy pursues us in the wilderness. Verse 13, right? Pursues. You guys remember Exodus 14, Pharaoh, he sees Israel leaving. He changes his mind and what? He pursues them, right? They're pursued. They fled into the wilderness. Verse 14, just like in the Exodus, we were fleeing into the spiritual wilderness. God carries us safely on eagle's wings, it says. Does that sound familiar from the Exodus? Exodus 19.4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. It's a promise of protection and care. There's a really cool additional promise based on that for you in Isaiah 40. I want you guys to look at it. Look at Isaiah 40.27. Some of you probably need this very much today to think about how God carries you safely on eagles' wings. Isaiah 40 verse 27 says this. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? 
He's like, why do you say stuff like that? (laughs) Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall be exhausted. But those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up on wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. It's a promise to us in the wilderness. As we're dealing in our wilderness wanderings, he's going to bear us up on eagles' wings. What else is Exodus' language? She gets nourished. Look at verse 14. She's nourished in the wilderness. God nourishes us in the wilderness. This is also talked about in verse 5. That the woman flees into the wilderness where she has a place prepared for her by God in which she is nourished for 1,260 days. This is kind of cool because though God's people are being chased in the wilderness by Satan, it says in verse 5 that it's actually a place prepared for her by God. Isn't that amazing? You know, it talks about this 1,260 days or it talks about uh, time, times, and half a time, three and a half years. It all represents the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, which is a wilderness time for us as God's people as we await the new Jerusalem coming, that we're in this wilderness time. It's a time of tribulation. It's a time of difficulty. It's a time of warfare. But notice that that time in the wilderness is not determined by our enemy. It's determined by God. 1260 days. He's saying it's very specific. God has determined exactly the time of our difficulties in the wilderness. It's been determined not by our enemy who hunts us, but by our God who helps us. It should be a great comfort. There's all kinds of promises like that throughout Scripture that God will not lead you in a time that you cannot um, faithfully, by his power, endure. And it's a place prepared for us by God where he meets us and he feeds us. It says he nourishes her in the wilderness. Have you been nourished in the wilderness? Jesus promised in in, uh, Revelation 2 that he will feed us with hidden manna. Have you experienced that? You've been in times of great difficulty and felt a presence of God and a feeding of God that you never felt when things were good. But in the wilderness, you found a place where he fed you. And then one more thing on the Exodus language. God saves us through water. Look at verse 16. He talks about a flood coming out and it drying up before him. Does that sound familiar? Sounds just like the Exodus, right? The water's intended by Satan for wrath. God dries them up. And like the Exodus, we walk through on dry ground. It's amazing. So yeah, we're being pursued by a dragon. And that dragon is Satan. And he is, aside from God, extremely powerful creature. He's not not God. He's not sovereign. He doesn't have the attributes of God. But he is way more powerful than us, way smarter than us, right? Way more skilled than us. So we are being pursued by the dragon. But guys, he's no match for your God. God's going to drown the dragon, not in the Red Sea, but in the lake of fire. It's going to be very satisfying. We'll look at it next week. I know, guys, that this is a time, every four years we have this time, when everyone wants you to believe that you face an existential threat. Okay? This is existential threat season. Every four years, we have a few months, where everyone wants to tell us that we face an existential threat. You know what existential means? Existence. It's a threat to your existence. Guys, as Christians... We don't have any of those. I don't know if you realize that. Christians don't have existential threats. Okay? That's what this passage tells us. God wins. God takes care of his people. In the end, we win. There are no existential threats. Take a look. Romans 16.20 is great. Listen to this. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's awesome. 
right? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So the thing I want to charge you this morning is, let's be the happy resistance, okay? There's no reason from this text for us to not be the happy resistance. You guys realize your joy will drive Satan crazy, and it will prove to the world that they've joined the wrong side. Your joy will drive Satan crazy, and it will prove to the world that that they're on the wrong side. And it will be a sign leading them home. Be like, whoa, what's that happy resistance? What's those people that don't face existential threats? I think they might be on the winning side, the people that follow Jesus. The Lord's Supper, guys, reminds us every week it's a time for us to stop and be nourished by the Lord in the wilderness. It's a time to receive hidden manna. It's a time to remember and rejoice in the defeat of our accuser, right? Lord's Supper reminds us of that. It's a time to celebrate that sinners like us have clear consciences before God because of the blood of the Lamb washes over all our sin. It's a time to look forward to the removal of all evil and the rebirth of the world that's coming. If that's your hope, and if you desire evermore to keep the commandments of God and hold fast the testimony of Jesus, as it says in verse 17, we invite you to take the the bread and the cup with us. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for sending your holy son, Jesus Christ, to defeat Satan and release us from his kingdom. Thank you that now in Jesus, no accusation can stand against us in your court. Lord, help us to believe that. Help us to enjoy that in the court of our conscience. Make your great love in the gospel just rock our hearts and change us, that it would free us to more and more live in your kingdom, even now. Feed us now, Lord, at your table, as you've already fed us in your word. We pray you'd nourish us in the wilderness. We pray that you'd make us strong in love, to love and serve you, to love and serve our neighbors. Lord, as we're being pursued and hunted and accused and tested and tempted, Lord, we trust in you. This is a sign we trust in the blood of Jesus. We trust in the power of your kingdom. When we take the Lord's Supper, Lord, we're, we're being reminded that this too does not shake us. And we thank you for that hope in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's take the Lord's Supper together. First, we'll take the bread together. Hear now the voice of your Savior, the one born to rule the nations with a rod of iron, but first was slain for your sin on the cross. He says this to you. This is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. Hear now the words of King Jesus, who was caught up to God into his throne, but first he bled and he died for you. And he says this to you this morning. This is the cup that is poured out for you in the new covenant. My blood, take and drink in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, stay with us in our wilderness way. Kindle our hearts. Awaken our hope. Jesus, give us the power to know you as you're revealed in Scripture and in the breaking of this bread. We pray that you'd grant this for your glory, for your renown, that the nations might know your name and turn to you. 
pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.